Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to kick off so that I don't prolong the evening beyond that which is uh, reasonable. I want to welcome you very warmly and apologise for the low turnout, um, but it'll be a nice, cosy little bus select bunch. And people will feel free to ask questions and, uh, and engage with Peter. A quick word of um, uh, introduction. Uh, many of us know Peter uh, Williams already, uh, but uh, he's a man who has a number of quite interesting roles. He is the philosopher in residence at Damaris, um, an organisation based in Southampton. He's an author, in fact, he's prolific. He has three books coming out next year. I don't know how he does it. He's Assistant Professor of Worldview and Communications at uh, Gimlekollen University in Norway. He's an occasional composer. We've been listening to some of his compositions this afternoon, which were very impressive. Um, he is a pathological Doctor Who fan and has written on the subject before. Uh, and he's a very good speaker, so we're very grateful to have him. He's going to be speaking on the topic of understanding Jesus using the structure he's adopted in his book, a few copies of which remain to be purchased if you want one at the back. Um, but the handout you've been given on your seat uh, gives you an outline of the approach he's going to take. So without further ado, I will hand over to Peter. We're going to try and be finished by 9 o'clock. And the idea is that he will break the evening up into little chunks and you get a chance to ask yeah. So depending on how it goes, we may not get through all the material, but that's all to the good because that'll just be an incentive for you to go and buy the book and finish seeing how the, the argument pans out. Um, but no, I'd rather that we have a good uh, look and a good backwards and forwards uh, on each issue as we go through than that I try and stuff our brains full of too much so that it's kind of leaking out of our ears by the end of the evening. Uh, do make sure you can see the PowerPoint up here. And uh, without further ado, let me get the ball rolling. The approach I started to take in this book came partly out of research I was doing on the nature of spirituality um, in the educational context, actually. Um, there are, as you probably know, government rules in this country about certain elements that schools have to include within the curriculum, uh, sort of personal, social, moral, uh, community education and so on. And alongside all of that is the requirement that schools build spiritual education across the whole curriculum. Unfortunately, uh, having said this, government then provides teachers with mutually contradictory advice about what the heck spirituality is, uh, in such a way that means it's totally uh, undefined, unmeasurable, and unimplementable uh, as part of the curriculum. So I was doing research on, well, what is spirituality? And I basically found that um, the New Testament gave me a lot of uh, good advice in coming to a definition of spirituality that could be um, appropriated by people of all faiths and none. Um, because, of course, in the education world, if you're going to be doing spiritual education, you have to take into account the, the pluralistic context um, that you have in those state schools. And I actually I found um, that in the writings of the New Testament and from Jesus himself, that I actually got my inspiration for this generic definition of spirituality. And that led me to start thinking about Jesus in terms of this definition of spirituality, which I will unveil forthwith. Uh, 
people seem to be much more keen these days to talk and think about spirituality than religion uh, or faith, particularly given the way the new atheists have successfully campaigned to redefine the meaning of the word faith so that it automatically means blind faith, um, which is a completely unbiblical and untraditional uh, view of the matter so far as Christianity is concerned. Um, But I thought spirituality would be an interesting way into understanding Jesus and what he was about. So the approach I take is that understanding Jesus' own concept of spirituality, the role that he thought he should play in people's spirituality, would lead us to understand Jesus by adopting a Jesus-centred spirituality. That's what I argue for uh, in the book. And I've hyphenated understand because of a pun made by an American philosopher called Peter Kreft, who says to understand something really means to stand under the authority of reality to be that which determines how we think what we believe. And it's not us calling the shots, it's reality, it's the facts, it's the truth that calls the shots. And our task in trying to be wise people is to stand under the authority of what's real to shape how we are going to live in the world. And I thought that sort of pun of standing under understanding um, was quite a good uh, way into thinking what I mean here uh, by appreciating um, Jesus' take on spirituality and the role that he thought he should play in it and whether that uh, is going to influence our view of our own spirituality. So, here's my definition of spirituality. I reckon that a spirituality is a way of relating to reality. It's about your relationships to everything, to to ourselves, to each other, to the world around us, and particularly determined by whatever we understand the nature of ultimate reality to be. What is our relationship with ultimate reality, whatever that might be? Maybe you think it's, it's the physical world itself is, is just the ultimate reality. Maybe you have a, a pantheistic worldview and you think of the ultimate reality as the one that is beyond the illusion of the world. Or every view of life, every philosophy and religion and so on, has its view of the nature of ultimate reality, which is key to shaping that spirituality. And indeed, it's how you relate to the world around you and yourself through your worldview beliefs, your set of answers to the really fundamental questions about life, the universe, and everything, coupled with the attitudes of your heart. Uh, and I mean that in a deeper sense than just what you feel about life, or that it would include this, but also what, what choices, what commitments you make towards what you believe to be true. How are you... Uh, committed to uh, being on the basis of what you believe and that these beliefs and attitudes together lead you to act in the world in a certain way Um, so because I believe that God exists and has a certain character and because I have a certain attitude towards God a positive one rather than a negative one that leads me to do certain things in life, like I bother praying, 
Clearly, if I didn't even believe there was a God, or if I thought there was a God, but I had a very negative attitude towards him, didn't want anything to do with him, then I probably wouldn't bother spending much time praying. So you see how the coupling of your beliefs about the nature of reality and your attitudes towards that then leads you to behave in a certain way. You could say how you relate to reality through your head, your heart and your hands if you want a a three-point alliterative way of remembering it. And indeed Jesus taught in his reply to the question from someone about the, the greatest commandment that we should love God with all of our heart and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. That is, with all of our our heart, our attitudes, our inner self, our mind, which would therefore include our our worldview, and all our strength, that is, what, what we do in the world. And he's drawing there on a tradition from Deuteronomy, and that is put in a couple of different ways in several of the, the Gospels. Indeed, Jesus taught that the only way to enter into this true spirituality of, of loving God and neighbour and that follows on from that command about loving God, that the way into the true spirituality was to trust him, Jesus himself, as the the divine point of access, if you like, into God's love and forgiveness. So here's two different passages from two um, independent sources, um, John and Matthew, and you see here in John, Jesus using this image of himself as the gate, through whom we go to know the Father. Or in Matthew, um, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, uh, using this pastoral imagery in both instances. So he had an idea about the structure of spirituality. And I say, well, everyone has beliefs, everyone has attitude, everyone acts on that basis. Everyone wants, wants their spirituality not to be pulling them in different directions. We want there to be a an integrity between what we believe and our commitments and our feelings and our actions in the world. But Jesus had a specific way of filling out that structure. And it wasn't just that he was giving a a philosophy, a, well, here's what I would put into that structure, as it were. He actually, in his teaching, points to himself as a key part of what he thought people's spirituality should be. It's a pretty kind of chutzpah kind of a claim uh, to make, if you like. Let me point out in the book that in in coming to grapple with, well, what do you make of someone like that who, who, who gives you that advice about your spirituality? What you make of Jesus will depend on, to use some fancy technical language, a hermeneutical dialogue, that is the interaction between your spirituality that you already have, because everyone has one. You already believe certain things about the nature of reality. You might have thought about it a great deal. You might not have thought about it a great deal, but you have some thoughts about it. You have some commitments in life. You have a lifestyle, if you like, a way of living. So that has an influence on what we make of coming to some new set of data like data about Jesus. Also, the kind of criteria that we use to decide what evidence is relevant, what's going to count for us as good evidence that we ought to consider. 
and what's going to count for us as a good argument. What are our kind of rules of making um, good choices about evidence and conclusions that we can draw from that evidence? What do we think the relevant evidence or data is? And what do we make of the relevant arguments for or against a particular viewpoint? That's very abstract, so let me give you a more concrete example here. So here we have those four points sort of aligned up in a series of arrowed boxes. So you have your worldview, your criteria of theory choice, what you make of the data, and what explanation you're going to arrive at at the end of the day. So suppose your worldview includes a belief that atheism is true, that there isn't a God. Well, your criteria of what's going to count for you as sensible evidence or sensible kinds of conclusions that you might draw from evidence would probably and, and sensibly include something like don't consider miraculous explanations for things. I mean, that would be stupid to consider a miraculous explanation if you're pretty convinced that miracles couldn't happen because there's no God there who could work them. That just ties in, doesn't it? So then, presented with a set of data, as we might get on to looking at later, about, say, the historicity, the historical evidence about Jesus' death and burial and empty tomb and resurrection appearances, whatever you make of that historical data, you're going in... By the time you come to explaining it, you're going to end up saying, well, whatever happened... Even if I can't explain what happened, the one thing I know didn't happen was a resurrection from the dead. Because that kind of stuff just doesn't happen, does it? it? There must have been some kind of deceit or delusion on the part of the people who are testifying to this event. They say a resurrection happened, but they must be wrong. And there are only a couple of different ways in which you can be wrong about that kind of thing. Um, even if you can't decide in which way it is they're wrong, the one thing you would surely think is, they must be wrong. But supposing you started, and in your worldview was a belief that there is a God. Now, you're not a Christian, necessarily. Maybe you're just a philosophical theist. You think, on the balance of probability, there probably is some kind of intelligent personal creator. Some kind of being who, I suppose, could work a miracle if he had reason to, and he wanted to, and he chose to. Well, then, amongst your criteria for what makes good explanations, what makes relevant data and so on, you might include a rule like this. Um, It's okay to uh, think that a miracle happened so long as it genuinely is the best explanation of the available data. Uh, You want to avoid arguments from ignorance. You're not just going to say, ooh, I don't know what happened here, therefore God did a miracle. That would be an invalid argument from ignorance. But if you've got a genuine, motivated, uh, uh, evidential case for thinking that the best explanation of the data in hand is a miracle, then it's okay to say that because your background beliefs admit that possibility, at least. You have to at least consider that possibility. And that means at some stage, at some level of evidence, you might end up saying, the evidence convinces me. In which case, presented with the data for the resurrection of Jesus, you might well end up saying, yeah, I do think he was risen from the dead. And you can see, therefore, why, why 
people might even agree on what the data to be explained is, but disagree about the explanation because of differences earlier on in this process of how we reason about things. And you can say, I see how the atheist approaching exactly the same evidence is reasonable by their lights to draw this conclusion, whereas someone who already believes in a god is reasonable by their lights to draw this conclusion. And we can reasonably disagree with one another, and we know where the crucial point of disagreement between us is. So what I do in the book, and what I'll do this evening, is, is ask you to consider where are you starting from when you approach the table, as it were, and to keep track of what difference the, the data and the arguments I give you might make to what you make of understanding Jesus. So I'm not sort of, and I don't say in the book, now you've read the book, obviously you'll all have to agree with me. I kind of say, now you've read the book, you'll have to make your own mind up on how, what change, if any, the arguments based on the evidence have made to your beliefs about Jesus, given where you started. So to illustrate, you'll see there's a blank copy of this chart at the top of your page. Here is, just for illustrative purposes, three different people all of whom completely agree with one another about the relative strength of the different arguments or the five ways that I put in my book for understanding Jesus. I'm sort of aping Thomas Aquinas's five ways for the existence of God in Summa uh, Theologica. But they all start from a different prior position. So if, if you take point five as 50-50, that is 50-50 absolutely sitting on the fence with respect to the question, is the Christian understanding of who Jesus was true? Okay, that's the, the question where I'm addressing in the book. Now, here we have someone who starts at point one on our scale. This would represent someone who's an atheist, a pretty hardcore atheist, but not as hardcore as you could be. It would be possible to say... I am, I am so convinced that atheism is true that I think it's absolutely logically impossible for the Christian understanding of Jesus to be true. And if you think something's logically impossible, no amount of evidence, an argument from evidence, could convince you that it is true. If I told you that, interestingly, this afternoon, uh, walking around the park, I'd bumped into one of those square circles... You know, one of those circles that's square. Um, you're not even going to bother listening to the evidential case I now want to make. And say, oh, I have, I have eyewitnesses who will back me up. They saw the square circle too. Does that convince you anymore? You know, obviously not. Um, so here's an atheist who, who's not saying the Christian understanding of Jesus is impossible. It couldn't possibly be true. But they, of course, think it's very unlikely that it's true because they're very convinced that there's no God, and if there's no God, he can't become incarnate in Jesus. Could he? So there, here, maybe this person is some kind of agnostic. Not sure whether or not there's a God. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. If there is, I suppose he could do miracles, could become incarnate. 
maybe it's all going to hinge for me on what the evidence says. But it might take quite a lot of evidence to convince me. Here's someone, probably, who is a theist. They already believe in the God. They maybe have quite a specific idea about God's character, the kind of thing that you might think he might do. And it's all going to hinge on what's the evidence. And all of the weight of the evidence for such a person would go into convincing them of the Christian understanding of Jesus. Whereas for someone who, say, starts out as an atheist, maybe the evidence will, will change their position as they, as they get more and more of it. But all the weight of that evidence is partly going, to, going into trying to convince them that there is a God, as well as convincing them that Jesus is God. Whereas if you already believe in God, all the weight of the historical evidence can go into convincing you that Jesus was God. Because you're already convinced there's a God, you see? So, of course, it's, it's unlikely that any three people looking at these arguments are all going to agree that, well, that argument has exactly so much weight that it moves me on that much. Now, you notice another thing about this is, here's our atheist, and they've considered the first argument that I'll give, and they've said, yeah, that argument doesn't convince me that the Christian view of Jesus is true. They haven't suddenly gone over the 50-50 line. They're not convinced that the Christian understanding of Jesus is true. They're still saying, no, I don't think it's true. It's very unlikely. But they are saying, I do think that argument has some weight to it. I can see that there is some evidence that points towards that conclusion. It's a bit like being in a court of law and saying, okay, those lawyers, they haven't presented enough evidence to convince me that so-and-so is guilty of the crime yet. But I'm beginning to get a bit more suspicious of them because the case is building up. I'm not con- I, I don't think, beyond reasonable doubt yet, I'm not convinced. But I'm a little bit more convinced than I was before the lawyer started speaking, giving his case. So if you think that there's some weight to each argument, as you go through the process of considering them, what happens is it soaks up some of your prior scepticism. When you then consider the second argument, you're coming to the table of that second argument, as it were, from a slightly less sceptical position, read the Christian understanding of Jesus, than you were before. And so on, and so on, and so on. And by the time I've gone through the five arguments that I think Jesus and the apostles used to claim that their understanding of Jesus, his role in our spirituality was true. Where does that put you? The other caveat to note is that by the very nature of, of making a sort of cumulative case argument, a sort of courtroom kind of argument, is that the, the overall weight of the case is more than merely the sum of its parts. And you can, you can see that by thinking... Um, the strength of a case where you say you had, some, you had some eyewitness testimony to the crime and you had some fingerprint evidence and you had some blood spatter evidence and you had some DNA evidence and so on. It's not just that you go, okay, well, let's say, you know, this bit of evidence has a sort of plus one weight of evidence and this one's got a plus two and that one's got a plus 0.5 and we just add up the numbers. The very fact that you can have a case that draws from independent lines of evidence that all point in the same direction makes the overall case 
slightly stronger than just the sum of its parts because, okay, if you've got eyewitness testimony, I suppose it's possible to think, well, maybe the witnesses were bribed. Maybe they're lying. I could give you lots of different witnesses, but maybe someone got to all of them. You know, you could explain them all giving the wrong information by one easy explanatory hypothesis. Someone bribed the whole bunch of them. Um, but then, how do you explain the DNA evidence? Did someone you know, bribe the police? How did they get to them as well? That, would, that doesn't sort of cover... How, how maybe, well, maybe the, you know, statistics you know, can be mistaken, and it's only one chance out of so and so, and so many, so maybe that's, that's wrong. You want to hold it all on there. But with the blood spatter evidence from a different scientific witness and so on, um, so the more different independent lines of evidence you get, all pointing to the same conclusion, the stronger the overall weight of the case is. So um, you can kind of account for that, either as you go through by being a little bit generous with your estimates, or you could add, as it were, sort of by the end, having got an overview of the whole thing, you could kind of add Wayne number six. What do I make of the, the cumulative weight of these arguments adding to one another as they reflect on one another as well, as they give a context to each other as you go through? Um, and I think particularly the first two ways give a context in which the third, as we'll see, um, makes a lot more sense. So we have a cumulative case where each argument provides some evidence for the conclusion, even if on its own it doesn't provide enough evidence for the conclusion. And I look at the conundrum of Jesus' self-image, Jesus' miracles, hiving off Jesus' resurrection is a particularly significant miracle, Jesus' fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy and religious experience, including contemporary religious experience of various kinds, that centres around Jesus. And then the cumulative weight of that case would be raising the probability of the Jesus conclusion, of course, relative to what you already believe when you approach the evidence. So, let me pause there. That's the kind of framework of the approach, as it were, before we actually get stuck into the individual Arguments and see if you've got any questions, points of clarification, objections, queries, desire for another cup of tea, whatever. Have I made lucid sense thus far? Good. Hmm. Well, don't be shy. As we go through, I will stop after each of the ways for questions. Perhaps you'll have more specific questions on the particular arguments. In the book, I take a a three-pronged approach to trusting the biblical testimony to the historical Jesus. I actually look at this level of intuitive trust, which is something not a lot of work has been done on, but I look at some recent um, philosophy of testimony I, I got a, one of the latest books, a collection of essays on the philosophy of testimony, which is something that's interesting to think about in the legal context and, and in theory of knowledge and so on, and started applying some of that to trusting the reliability of the historical documents that we have about Jesus, basically making the point that, that when you get testimony from someone, the burden of proof is on the sceptic, 
of that testimony. And if you didn't put things that way round, if you said, I'm never going to trust someone's testimony, whether it's you know, vocally in person or written testimony about something, said, I'm not going to trust testimony until I've got a good reason for trusting it, uh, we'd find it quite hard to know anything in life. Um, you know, we all have to learn our ABCs, trusting that teacher knows what they're going on about. And if we said, no, I'm not going to trust you when you tell me that this is the English alphabet, so I'm going to wait until anyone can give me some evidence that that's true, um, particularly if all the people around you are trying to use English when they do that for you, you're going to find it very difficult. Um, of course, we want to be on the lookout, sort of mentally, for signs of... Um, of unreliability in things, you know, we assess people like the used car salesman, you know, is he a little bit, little bit dodgy, you know, is he giving off the wrong vibe, is he trying to sell you the Cortina, you know, the front half's the Cortina, never mind about the back half. Um, we're, we, we have our sort of mental ears up for signs of unreliability, but it might just be that you read the gospel text, take Mark, read it in an evening, it's very short, punchy, um, what do your sort of intuitive sense about is this a seemingly honest and trustworthy kind of account? What's your intuitive judgment about it? What's the intuitive judgment of people who are professional literary scholars and historians and so on? And how much weight do we place in those kind of judgments and things? So I'm not going to go into that, but I just thought it's an interesting thing to note because most sort of apologetics books, Christian evidences and so on, go on the next two. Uh, one is, is an argument for the general reliability of, of say, the gospel texts uh, and the information contained in there. You mount an argument, as I was looking at this morning in the church, and it'll be on the podcast channel and things later, looking at arguments about the general historical reliability of that text, judged by the, just the standard kind of questions that you want to ask of any historical document. Questions like, well, how long after the supposed events... Are these events being reported? How long after the event is it being written down? Obviously, the, the closer to the event, the report, the better. Um, let's do a comparison between, if we can date the Gospels and date other ancient histories, by that kind of test, the Gospels fare very well and so on. How many manuscript copies have we got compared to other ancient historical documents? How close to the original written text are those copies that we have available with which we can reconstruct the original text and so on. All those kind of standard historical questions. Um, it'll be on the podcast channel at Church and mine. Um, you can get some papers if you sign up for your email and the sheet at the back. But the take-home message is, judged by the standard historical criteria, the New Testament passes with flying colours. If you're going to make arguments like, oh, you can't trust the New Testament, it was written down too long after the events well, then you have to close down all the ancient history departments in the university um, as well because other ancient documents that historians use perfectly well day by day um, would have been written much further after the events that they're talking about and so on. And then there's this issue of particular reliability. Even setting aside any considerations of general indications of reliability in that text, suppose you could even think, I think this text is generally unreliable a generally untrustworthy source of information about Jesus. But historians will apply to historical texts particular tests of veracity, 
particular marks of reliability that they think you can kind of use as a sieve to sift those little nuggets of genuine historical data, even from a generally unreliable historical source. And we'll look at some of those criteria. And what I'll argue this evening will only be on the basis of that kind of data. So I'm not assuming that the the Gospels are the inspired word of God or anything like that. I'm not even going to assume, for the purposes of tonight, that they're generally reliable, although I make that argument in the book. I'm just going to use data that you can establish by standard historical tests that historians use that they think give good indications that, well, that bit of what this text says is more likely than not reliable. You see the the sort of very cautious uh, method being employed here. Any questions on that? I take a sip of coffee. Mm. Marvelous, you make me feel very erudite. Um, you, 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 did, uh, yeah. you did mention about um, you did mention about uh, you did mention about the resurrection. Yes. And uh, that's why we that's why we are Easter. Absolutely. And uh, is right. That's why that's why we are Easter. Yeah. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to relate what, what you know. Uh, I'm trying to work, work out how, how this relates to you know uh, priests, you know. Mm. Well, I'll mention that when we come on to looking at the resurrection. That's one of those interesting circumstantial bits bits of of data. Um, here's a quote from an atheist philosopher called Colin McGinn but a well-noted atheist philosopher. And he says this about Jesus. He says, I still admire many of the teachings of Jesus and find his life exemplary of some important moral truths. But I long ago rejected the supernatural baggage that accompanies Christian belief. Now, that's an interesting view, and various people have expressed that kind of view down the years. But other people have said... Actually, there's, there's something odd about that kind of understanding of Jesus, that he was you know, a good, moral, wise teacher. But, of course, all of that supernatural stuff that Jesus himself believed and advocated isn't true. C.S. Lewis famously, in his book Mere Christianity, put it rather colourfully this way. And it's an argument that's been criticised quite a lot by the the new atheists of late, so um, I'm going to defend it. (laughs) Uh, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said, and look, we we noted it this way in which Jesus was saying, I, trusting me, should be at the heart of your personal spirituality. Um, Said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says, I'm a poached egg. Or he'd be the devil of hell. He'd be, he'd be really bad. You must make your choice. Either this was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worth. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
But let us not come with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. Lewis is here drawing, actually, on an ancient Christian tradition of argument. Here's Professor John Duncan, a Scottish professor of the 18th and 19th century, who put it this way. Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or he was himself deluded and self-deceived, or he was divine. There's no getting out of this trilemma. Um, you know, a dilemma is when you have a choice between two things. A trilemma is when you have a choice between three things. Okay? Um, now, of course, I think the most popular contemporary response to that kind of argument is going to say, well, yes, but that makes a very crucial assumption that's not true. The assumption behind this argument is that the historical Jesus really did claim, apparently sincerely, to be divine. Not just, I should play a key role in your spirituality, but, you know, I'm the divine entry point of your relationship with God. And, of course, if he didn't make that claim, historically speaking, if that's just a legend or a myth or something, then this argument won't even get off the ground. Um, It's the kind of view you might have picked up, say, from Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code, um, where, uh, apologies to those who were here this morning, because I've got a little section that's the same, um, he puts forward the view through the voice of Professor Teabing that Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, not the son of God. His establishment as the son of God was officially proposed and voted on at the Council of Nicaea, which was a church council that met in 325 AD. And before this, you pick up the idea from Teabing, Dan Brown, that Jesus was just a human great moral teacher, like Colin McGinn thinks, And then at the Council of Nicaea, someone had the bright idea, I know, let's treat Jesus as divine as well as human. We'll have a vote on it, and it went through. And then some sort of encyclical went out from the meeting saying to all the Christians everywhere, let's now believe that Jesus is divine as well, and they all went along with it. Um, It's complete historical bunkum, of course, but it's a view that's been sort of popularly picked up through that kind of uh, fictional uh, work, good thriller though it may be. The common claim today, says Mark Middlebird, is that the belief in Jesus as a divine person arose long after he walked the earth. It, it doesn't go back to the historical Jesus. But the best historical scholarship shows this is simply not the case. And you can look, as I look in the book, at indirect evidence and direct evidence for this. Let me just give you a, a, a sampling of some of my favourite bits. Uh, this is a top-down view of the mosaic floor of a Christian prayer house or church Um, uncovered by archaeologists in 2005 uh, in the grounds of Megiddo Prison, actually, interestingly enough. And there's a bit of a reconstruction. You can see there's the the plinth that would have had a table on it for the communion in the centre of the church, and there's these mosaics clustering around uh, in the hall there. I've got a little video. The the archaeologist's accent is a little bit thick, but I'll reiterate some of his points afterwards, but it's a nice little video Uh, showing you around uh, the dig in process and some of the highlights, interesting things in this dig. So, you might not have picked up through his accent some of that, so let me reiterate, but it's nice to see the film of the dig still going on there. The fish, of course, he was pointing out, are a very early Christian symbol. Uh, And we know from other 
sources that the, the Greek word fish, which is uh, ichthus, was used by early Christians as an, an acrostic, where the first, uh, each of the letters in the word stands for another word. Um, and the acrostic uh, was Jesus Christos Theos Deus Soter, that is Jesus Christ, God's Son, Saviour. God's Son. Um, remember this church dated by the pottery and so on to the 3rd century, to early part of the 3rd century, about 235 AD. That's 100 years before the Council of Nicaea, an indication there are people believing that Jesus was God's son. But even more, of course, this inscription here from uh, Akeptus, the God-loving Akeptus, has given the money for the table in memory of God, or the God, Jesus Christ. A hundred years before the Council of Nicaea. Just from an archaeological find, you can completely undermine um, Professor Teabing's uh, fictional view of Jesus, that um, this is something about him made up by Christians, you know, many generations later. And you can push the, the date just from indirect evidence even earlier. Here's a bit of graffiti from Rome. You can maybe just make out a man standing here with his arm outstretched, looking up to a humanoid figure on a cross with a donkey's head. He's made such an ass of himself that he's got crucified. You know, only criminals and enemies of the Roman state get crucified, of course. And the inscription here says, um, Alexaminos worships his God, or Alexaminos, worship your God. What an idiot this is for worshipping this crucified criminal. Um, I don't know, how many crucified criminals do we know from the ancient world? This has been dated to about AD 200. Um, Jesus seems quite a good candidate for a crucified person that might have been worshipped. And of course, you only worship a god. I know today we might say I worship a pop star or a football player or whatever. Um, but this is the ancient world. You only worship your God. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, one of the very early Christian martyrs, he's a sort of second generation Christian. He was martyred, according to one source, in 108 AD. He was taken from his city, paraded through uh, a long route on his way to execution in uh, Rome, where he was thrown to the lions to be torn to shreds. And on his journey, he wrote a number of letters to different Christian communities along the routes to encourage them to keep their faith in Christ, despite the fact that it might get them murdered. Here's a, a chart that shows uh, Jesus and the dating. So sort of when he died here in 3033 AD, some of the disciples, those who were the eyewitness generation, and then were into the second generation of Christians, like Ignatius, died in 108. These are people who knew people who knew Jesus. Ignatius didn't know Jesus, but we know from his writings and, and various uh, information we have that Ignatius, for example, here you can see Ignatius knew both John the disciple and Peter the disciple. And he didn't have much, if any, of the New Testament texts, certainly not the Gospels, maybe one of them had been written by then that he had access to, but his trust in Jesus was not based on the written testimony of the Gospels. 
It was based on his trust in the testimony that he personally received from people who claimed to have known Jesus personally. He's only one step removed uh, from the eyewitness generation. And on the basis of that information, he was sufficiently convinced not to uh, reject Jesus as his Lord, not to say Caesar is Lord, that he's prepared to be gruesomely murdered. Now, of course, people can be prepared to be murdered for things that they believe sincerely that are wrong. It's not the point that I'm making. But it's a pretty good indicator that he at least believed it sincerely. Um, and it says something evidential about his, his confidence in the sources of information that he's putting his life on the line on the basis of. Here's uh, an interesting quote from Ignatius' letter to the Tralians, in which he encourages them about Jesus Christ, who died for us, that you might escape death through faith in his death. And he entreats them to ignore, and here's a technical theological term, docetic uh, denial of Jesus' humanity. The, one of the, the earliest um, ways of appropriating Jesus for your spirituality without being Christian about it was actually to say, of course Jesus was divine, but it's stupid to think that he was human. He only seemed to be human because it's below the dignity of divinity to get involved in this evil material World, You can kind of see the roots of Gnosticism as a philosophy um, uh, here as well. So Ignatius, on his way to die for his faith in Christ, tells the Trillians, turn a deaf ear to any speaker who avoids mention of Jesus Christ, who was of David's line, was born of Mary, who was truly born, ate and drank, not only seemed to be human, but really was human. Um, so even those who very early on just one generation removed from Jesus, wanted to appropriate him for their own spirituality without being Christian about it. They weren't saying, oh, of course, he was just a good moral teacher, not divine. They were saying, of course, he was divine. <laughs> he just wasn't a good human teacher. He was a divine teacher, not human. That's, that's below the dignity of God. So I think that's an interesting spin when you look at this kind of, no, no, the idea that Jesus was divine, that's just made up later actually the idea that he was only a good human teacher that was made up later as Dean L. Overman puts it in his uh, great book A Case for the Divinity of Jesus the earliest literary sources in our possession that we know for certain were written within decades of Jesus' death uh, contained devotional creeds and hymns and liturgical formulae that pre-existed those literary sources and they present compelling evidence of a pattern of worship of Jesus as the resurrected divine being, dating from a time almost contemporaneous with those events. And he looks uh, in some detail at the sources we have about the devotional practices of the primitive church, uh, clearly demonstrating that Jesus was worshipped as divine right from the beginning of the Christian movement. As Professor Craig A. Evan puts it, if you assert that Jesus did not regard himself as in some sense God's son, well, that makes the historian wonder why other people did, other people who knew him well and closely. From the earliest time, Jesus was regarded by Christians as the son of God. 
Why not regard him as the great prophet, if that was all he claimed, all he taught? Why not regard him as the great teacher, if that had been all that he'd ever pretended to be? Earliest Christianity regarded Jesus as Messiah and Son of God, I think, because that's how his disciples understood him and how Jesus permitted them to understand him. That's the simplest adequate explanation for those beliefs on the part of the first and second generation of Christians. And that's all the evidence that we have points to them having that belief. As even the agnostic philosopher Antonio Hare says in his little book on Jesus, we should remember that his first followers were pious Jews to whom the claims being made would have seemed blasphemous had they not been given strong reason to believe them. And where better than from Jesus himself? Why would such people in such a culture, under the pressure of pagan Roman occupation, where your social and national identity is bound up in your religious identity, a religious identity that says there's only one God and you can only worship the one God and you can't even worship an angel of God and it's blasphemy for a human to put himself on a level with God, it's these people who come to believe that Jesus is God first. It's not some sort of pagan mythological thing like, oh, there's lots of sons of gods and we're all polytheists here. Peter Kreft, who I mentioned earlier, actually points out you could apply this trilemma argument to the first generation of Christians. If if they were wrong about Jesus' self-understanding, did they just make it up out of the blue? What for? So they could get thrown into lions? That's a great perk. Um, Were they somehow misunderstanding Jesus, even though they knew him the best? And we've now, you know, all these centuries later, suddenly recovered the proper understanding of Jesus, all this time removed from the person himself. It doesn't seem unlikely. It doesn't seem likely. So John Rist, a professor of classics and philosophy at the University of Toronto, uh, having gone through this kind of investigation of this kind of material himself as a sceptic, came to the conclusion that the full range of Christian claims must go back to the earliest followers of Jesus and in all probability to Jesus himself. I could no longer delude myself that real scholarship told us that we've got no evidence that Jesus himself, as well as the earliest generation of his followers, made claims of his divinity. Now there's the direct evidence, of course, and we can only look at a small sampling of this. This is a fascinating wall painting from, uh, dated from about 235 AD, so again, 100 years before the Council of Nicaea, uh, at a house church in modern-day Syria, and it depicts an incident of the healing of the paralytic. You can see uh, him on his bed here, and here he is carrying his bed after Jesus has, has healed him. It's a sort of time-lapse fresco going on there, and with a rather literal interpretation of what the text in the Bible means by bed. It seems to be a great iron bedstead of a thing. You're probably thinking one more sort of camping bed that you would roll up. Um, but the interesting thing about this picture, of course, is depicting a scene known from, say, Mark's Gospel, the earliest Gospel, so I'll quote that one, um, in which the whole point of the story is that Jesus works that miracle as a sign that he does have the authority to say to this guy, your sins are forgiven on my own, on my own bat. I tell you, your sins are and are being forgiven. And everyone thinks, well, who can say that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know, if, if Kevin um, is upset with me because I've, I've done something to annoy him this weekend as I've been his house guest, um, then, in, you know, it's uh, within uh, his rights to forgive me. 
you know, if he's, if he's feeling generous. But he could do that, couldn't he? He could, he could forgive me. Um, but if Mags has done something to me this weekend, you know, not being the, the proper hostess that she should have been, of course she has been, wonderful, wonderful food, wonderful cake. Um, and then uh, Kevin goes up to Mags and says, don't, don't worry about what you did to Pete, I forgive you. Uh, that doesn't quite compute. Uh, it, it was me that was uh, sort of, I've got to be the one that does the forgiving if I'm the one who was hurt. You can't just go up to someone else and say, don't worry about the fact you hurt so-and-so, I forgive you. you know, don't worry about the fact you've sinned. I There's only one person who is at the brunt end of every wrong action that we do, of every sin, and that's God. There's only one person who's in the position to forgive every wrong action that we do because he's also at the brunt end of it, God. So clearly Jesus is putting himself in God's shoes. They see the theological implications and then he does the whole, well, which is easier to say, pick up, you know, if your sins are forgiven or lame man, pick up your bed and walk. And then he does the miracle. So whether or not you believe the miracle happened, putting all that to one side, the whole point of this story um, is Jesus putting himself in God's shoes and everyone knowing that that's what's going on and that's why they're taking umbrage with him. That's why he eventually got himself crucified. If he's just this nice, great moral teacher, why did they crucify him? Well, it's because at his trial, he deliberately puts his foot in it. Uh, his life is on the line and he knows that. He's being tried. They know, he knows they've got it in for him. And the high priest asks him, and here's uh, quoting from Matthew, uh, Mark, and you get it in Matthew's Gospel as well, so on different sources. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And in other words, are you the, the Jewish Messiah? I am, said Jesus, think of the burning bush. I am, the name of God. I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man, remember this phrase, the Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes, a traditional symbol of, of grief. Why do we need to hear more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy, what do you think? And they all condemn him as worthy of death. Now you might think that's quite odd, given that he's only claimed to be the son of, you'll see the son of man. What you have to remember is that Jesus is clearly, explicitly drawing upon Daniel's prophetic vision in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. In my vision at night, writes Daniel, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Clouds of heaven is a typical Jewish imagery of the glory of God. He, the son of man, approached the ancient of days, that is God, the father, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So with his life on the line at his trial, asked by the high priest a leading question, come on, do you think you're the Jewish Messiah? Jesus basically says, 
Not only do I think I'm the Jewish Messiah, matey, I think I am the divine figure, the son of man from Daniel's vision. And you think you're judging me, but I'm going to be coming back on God's judgment throne with the clouds of heaven and the day of judgment. You've all heard his blasphemy. What do you think? He's guilty. Of course he's guilty. Unless he's actually right about that claim. So, when you have someone going around saying things like, the Son of Man is the master even of the Sabbath. Who instituted the Sabbath? God. The Son of Man will send out his angels. Who owns angels? God. Um, And they will uproot everything from the kingdom that's spoiling it, etc. The Gospels are laced with this kind of stuff. You just have a threadbare thing if you try to cut out the, all these kind of references in multiple sources and that's what got him well, got him crucified so I would agree with and I'm not going to quote these, you can see them up there various scholars who would say clearly a, a high Christology, a, a Christian understanding of Jesus clearly goes back not only to the first generation of Jesus' disciples but, but to Jesus himself he really was making that kind of a claim about himself that forces you into the trilemma. What is the best explanation of Jesus given that he made those claims? You've only got a logically limited number of explanatory options on the table. He claimed to be divine. Well, either that claim was true, in which case, Lord, we have a nice little alliteration down the bottom here, or it wasn't, it was false. (laughs) it's a categorical statement it's either true or false if it was false then I suppose you could say well um, either Jesus didn't realise it was a false claim he thought he was divine but he wasn't he's a loony Um, that's a pretty big gap between your self understanding and the reality of what you are which is a pretty good definition of what sanity is, a narrow gap between your reality and your self-understanding. Or he knew that that claim was false. He was consciously making a deceptive claim. He was, in his culture's term, deliberately blaspheming and knowing it. He was a liar, a deceiver. He was saying to people, I'm the divine point of access to your forgiveness and eternal relationship with God, and I know I'm lying, but I'm fooling you all. Ha, ha, ha. What a great moral teacher. To the extent that you think the rest of our day, I haven't got room to go into it, you have to go to the book, this is where it gets a bit tricky, but to the extent that you think the rest of our reliable information about Jesus and his teaching and his character and so on mitigate against the plausibility of the lunatic and liar options, so to that extent you get pushed towards the it was a true claim, he was the Lord kind of option. Well, here's Richard Dawkins being asked by a journalist what he makes of that kind of argument, particularly as it was made by C.S. Lewis. And, of course, he's not impressed. Uh, Well, you could pick a much better target than C.S. Lewis, he says. Of course, he was a professor of English. A good one, no doubt, but, you know, a bit of an ad hominem dismissal there. Uh, Still, when you read some of Lewis's argument, they're just pathetic. Things like, well, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, so either Jesus was mad or bad, or he really was the son of God. It didn't seem to occur to Lewis that Jesus could simply be mistaken 
sincerely and honestly mistaken. I mean, what a pathetic argument. There's another option. I've presented a false dilemma, a false trilemma. And there's another option. It's not that Jesus uh, was uh, deliberately lying. It's not that he was deceived about who he was. It was just that he was honestly mistaken. You know, um, sometimes I honestly think I've uh, put my keys uh, in my jacket pocket and I discovered to my chagrin that I haven't and I've left them in my coat pocket. I was just honestly mistaken about where my keys were. Jesus thought that he was God and he wasn't. He was just honestly mistaken. Doesn't seem to me to be quite in the same category. Mike King puts an objection this way. He says, anyone honestly mistaken in such a way, thinking that they're Yahweh, would inevitably be considered insane. But why should Dawkins and other new atheists like him not be content to simply dismiss Jesus as mad or bad? Why not? If you're Richard Dawkins, say, well, Jesus must have been mad, or he was bad, he was, it was a con artist, or whatever. Well, quite clearly, it's because even a rudimentary flick through Jesus' life demonstrates both of those possibilities to be untenable. That's why he's got to make up this fourth option that seems to be a non-existent option. Indeed, in a recent uh, interview, Dawkins himself said, there's no evidence Jesus himself was barking mad. As Nicky Gumbel uh, puts it, the irony of the God delusion, in which Dawkins also makes this accusation about the lunatic lie lord argument, the trilemma argument, he says the irony of the God delusion is that Dawkins says that all Christians are deluded because they believe there is a God. If you believe in God, you're deluded. But Jesus was not deluded, even though he thought he was God. And that just doesn't seem to really hang together, as far as I'm concerned. Um, So I think there's something in that argument. I'm not saying, note, remember what I said earlier in the introduction. Okay, here's a nice little argument. QED, Jesus must have been divine. I've now converted you all, you know. Um, Not at all. But I do think that there's something there that, wherever I started from, would make me think there's something very interesting and odd going on on about this person Jesus there is a bit of a paradox here there is some plausible reason for thinking yeah he thought he was divine and there's only a certain number of ways you can explain that and and it really does seem quite difficult to bite the bullet and say he was so deranged or actually he was a con artist but maybe There's some weight of argument there, but maybe not enough to convince me to suddenly change my mind about who he is, but maybe enough to make me suspicious about him. Maybe enough to soak up just a little bit of my former scepticism about the Christian understanding of Jesus. And therefore, maybe when I come to looking at the next argument, I'll be a little bit more towards that 50-50 line than I was before I heard this argument. That's all that I'm wanting to claim for the argument. So if you are following along on your worksheets, having noted your prior position, this is way number one. And I guess the way to kind of think about this is, given the gap between where you started, wherever that was, and the 50-50 line, how strong, an ar- if you think there's some weight to this argument, how strong a weight are you going to say it has? Well, think of it like this. Would you need 
twice as much evidence, twice the weight of evidence to convince you to go just over the 50-50 line, to get to that 50-50 line. Okay? Would you need another argument at least as good as that to convince you? Or three arguments at least as good as that to convince you? Or four? You know, divide up the space like that and then move yourself forward by that amount. Saying, this isn't convincing me, but I do see there's part, there's an evidential case that is pointing in the direction of the Christian understanding of Jesus that might soak up a bit of my scepticism. Um, maybe it'll only soak up a fifth of my scepticism or a tenth of my or whatever it is. Um, there's no kind of numerical precise value that you can put on these kind of things. You can, you can put an algorithm, it's called Bayes' theorem, for those of you who know probability theory and so on, um, that will give you the relationship between your data and your evidence and your conclusions and so on. But um, putting actual numbers into a sort of mathematical formulae is you've got to get the number out of a sort of intuitive sense of how weighty does that evidence kind of feel to you. <laughs> you know? um, so everyone's got to make their own judgment about that. Um, but just seeing, does that... Or if you're a Christian here thinking, well, supposing I, I hadn't started as a Christian, supposing I just started as an agnostic or a theist, how much would I think that kind of argument would, would, would move me um, in terms of thinking about the Christian understanding, Jesus' understanding, as we now see, of himself? So anyone want to give any comeback or questions uh, about any element of that first way? Mm. Yeah. Just comment that you've got a little bit over ten minutes left. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, no, we, we, we won't. Uh, we'll skip over perhaps Jesus's. Uh, I'll give you an outline of where the rest of it. Are. I'll punt you to my book. Ha <laughs> um, I look at Jesus's miracles, and you've got some of the charts there, um, some of the data as we go through on your your handout. Um, basically saying, well, if you're open to there being a God, you've got to be open to miracles. I look at David Hume's arguments about miracles and so on. Then I get into the data. Jesus himself appeared to, the, appealed to the evidence of his miracles to convince people. And I try and look um, at, and you've got this nice chart. Where's the chart? Again, these, these are some of these criteria of authenticity. I look at things like uh, testimony that reflects on this from enemies of Christians who admit that Jesus did some strange things, but they give alternative explanations. They say things like, yeah, Jesus did these miracles and stuff, but it was by sorcery, or it was by being in league with the devil. So they're not on the Christian side, but there is something of an admission that tells us about how people viewed him in it and so on, or embarrassing stories, or this uh, key one is multiple attestation, independent witnesses saying the same thing. Um, And I look at a chart here, where I break down the miracles in the Gospels according to how many different sources and how many independent sources they're testified in and so on. And I point out that a lot of these miracles, they're not just sort of conjuring tricks just for the spectacle of it, that a lot of them you can see as enacted claims to divinity. They're sort of uh, parabolic ways of Jesus making other claims to put himself in God's shoes by the things that he does uh, miraculously. So that sort of sharpens the trilemma argument by saying here's more evidence that this is the self-understanding Jesus was communicating to people through these signs that you've got passing standard historical criteria and because they're miraculous if you think there's sufficient evidence to think they happened 
given your worldview is open to miracles happening, they give independent witness to the truth of Jesus' claim. So they sharpen and give independent witness of the lunatic liar lord kind of argument. And then I get into the resurrection, particularly uh, looking at, we mentioned from one source earlier about early creeds. Uh, Paul quotes this early creed in 1 Corinthians that various scholars of all stripes say goes right back on top of the events themselves. Um, it's a very early source that then gets quoted in Paul's letters and you get the same outline of events. Christ died, buried, empty tomb, appeared to various people, individuals and groups um, in no, numerous independent early sources. But there's some agreed data here that the majority of, of New Testament historians, whether they're atheists or agnostics or theists or whatever, would agree that this is the data Where they differ is how you explain the data, and a key to how they differ in explaining the data is what worldview assumptions they make at the beginning. Um, But I look at that and uh, give the argument that the best explanation of that data is indeed Jesus' resurrection. It's the simplest adequate explanation of the data. Indeed, it's the only adequate explanation. There are no competing adequate explanations of the data. Um, he's a Jewish New Testament scholar called Gerza Vermez, and his little book on the resurrection looks at a number of competing theories for explaining the resurrection data that are agreed on that he accepts. And he says none of these six alternative theories that he looks at to the Christian theory, none of them stands up to stringent scrutiny. He rejects the Christian interpretation but not on the basis of there's not evidence pointing to it, on the basis of that doesn't fit the worldview that I already have, you see. So uh, Anthony Flew, in the days when he was an atheist, admitted, I don't think it's possible to offer a satisfactory naturalistic account of what happened. Um, I look into some alternatives like, was it a hallucination? And that's probably the leading kind of naturalistic attempt to explain away the data in a non-Christian kind of way, that there was some sort of mass hallucination of people deluded into thinking they'd seen Jesus back from the dead and so on, why that doesn't make sense. And I look at fulfilled prophecy, and again, this is, this is an argument that I've seen lots of Christian apologists make, but not sufficiently carefully. And I was intrigued to, to set out to be very careful with it and see see how strong it was when you were very cautious with the argument. I wanted to take, you know, if you read people like Josh McDowell, so some people have heard of Josh McDowell's book, he'll sort of say, you know, there are, there are 400 prophecies in the Old Testament relating to the Jewish Messiah. And the odds of Jesus fulfilling all these 400 prophecies are, you know, 18 gazillion and billion, trillion, trillion to one. And um, here's the evidence that he fulfilled these prophecies. Here's a quote from the Old Testament, perhaps uh, interpreted out of context. And here's a proof text from the New Testament showing that he fulfilled it. I think, well, come on. You know, even I'm thinking, well, I'm not very convinced by that. What I'm going to do, I'm going to take just 27 very clear prophecies from the Old Testament several of them which come from multiple sources in the Old Testament, all of which have multiple independent attestation in the New Testament that Jesus fulfilled them, 
I'm going to be very conservative on the odds that I calculate for them, and I'm just going to see what number pops out at the end, and I drafted in a mathematician PhD friend of mine to help me run the calculations, because I'm a philosopher, not a mathematician. Um, so we ran the calculations, and the take-home number here, and you've got it on your chart, and I, you can see how I've got multiple independent sources that he fulfilled, you know, prophecy that comes from several places and so on, about these are just where he came from and what the Messiah should do, what's the kind of fingerprint of the Messiah according to the Old Testament and so on. For 12 of the prophecies, we calculated one chance in 170 million million. Uh, adding 15 prophecies from, taken from Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. If you've not read them, read Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and the gospel accounts of Jesus' death. Uh, just assigning a, a very generous one in four chance to each fulfillment. So you'd have to have one in four Jewish people in the first century um, dying in exactly the way Jesus did. And that's a rather generous odds to give. Um, but just with one in four, um, for those 15 aspects of those prophecies, um, that would be one chance in a 1,074 million, which combined together gives you one chance in 182,580 million million million, which is roughly one uh, chance in 1 times 8, uh, 1.8 times 10 to the power of 23. For those of you not used to powers of numbers, this is when we have really, really big numbers, and they're so big we can't be bothered to write them out longhand. Indeed, um, those odds of 1 in 1.8 times 10 to the 27, that's roughly comparable to your chances of successfully picking at random on your first attempt a single pre-marked, pre-specified grain of sand out of all of the grains of sand on the planet. Or one star, one pre-specified star picked at random on your first go out of all of the stars in the galaxy. Um, so that was pretty long odds. And then I look at some uh, testimony about religious experience and religious experience arguments and answered prayers and so on, documented healings and that kind of thing in the last chapter to kind of bring it into the modern day. So that's a, a very brief outline of the other ways. But you see, as you go through, each one begins to build up a context for the next, particularly the first two, the, the trilemma and then the miracles sharpening that independently witnessing them, you're getting more and more suspicious. And then, for me, personally, it's when you come to the, the resurrection data and trying to explain that. The resurrection argument in the context of the fact that this person made these claims about himself. It's not just some random bloke coming back from the dead. It's the one bloke who had made these apparently blasphemous claims about himself, had done a lot of apparently strange things that even people who didn't like him admitted he did, who fulfilled at very, very long odds the Old Testament prophecies about the character, nature, origins, etc. of the Jewish Messiah, um, who millions of people today find in their contemporary religious experience featuring and clustering around. It's this person who seems to have risen from the dead in vindication of those claims. So you see how the cumulative case kind of gives you a context for understanding the power of the individual bits of evidence as they kind of reflect on each other. And, you know, my hope is that I give people a better understanding of Jesus, of the data, 
of how we approach historical evidence, how our philosophical prior beliefs affect what we make of that kind of evidence as people keep track as they go through those five ways. Okay, you know, does this soak up a bit of my scepticism? Does this, does this? Oh, look, I've gone over the 50-50 line. I hope, of course, as a Christian. But maybe they don't, but I leave that up to the reader. Uh, this isn't a book that sort of bashes you around the head. So agree with me, agree with me. You know, um, It says, well, you, you make of him what you will, but here's some tools and some data and some arguments to help you do that. There we go. I'm, I'm a little early. That's good. Can you answer my question? Ah, yes. Yeah, about the resurrection. Yeah. Well, Richard Swinburne actually points out an argument about, about the fact that Christians started celebrating their religious festival on the Sunday instead of the Saturday... Because you have the, the Jewish Sabbath, the holy day is the Saturday, the Sabbath. And then Christians, very clear from early on, start have, holding their special day on a Sunday. Why do they make that move? Well, isn't it interesting to note that according to the New Testament story, Jesus rose from the dead on the Sunday morning. And they're commemorating that. And you could say about, about Easter, why does the church have, why did the church exist and have this celebration of this event and this person at its heart. What makes these monotheistic Jewish, fervently nationalistic Jewish people switch their special days, switch their holidays, switch their, what they're celebrating and clustering their religious experience and expression around to have a Christian understanding of Jesus? This sort of idea that Oh, well, the Christian understanding of Jesus is just this legend, this myth that arose hundreds and hundreds of years later. That's nothing to do with the earliest generations. It's just a misunderstanding of what Jesus was teaching and so on. He didn't really make those claims about himself. Um, That leaves you completely unable to explain the origins of Christianity. As as, as Chris points out, why did they suddenly make this change? Uh, for the perks of getting thrown to lions and, and being kicked out of synagogue and having their possessions confiscated. and uh, like, <laughs> oh, Why would you do that? Um, maybe the more straightforward explanation is that they at least sincerely thought they had good reason to think that Jesus was who he said he was. Yeah. So that's how I'd, I'd put that. Anymore, Thank you. Just one, one question mm, please. is non non Christians when you say that Jesus was in God's shoes, they mm. would come out with the thing, how could it be in God's shoes when he apparently is God? How would you answer that to a non Christian who comes out with that? Uh, yes, you raise you raise an excellent but rather difficult question because you're really raising the question about the Christian understanding of Jesus as both divine and human at one and the same time. And you can see why that Ignatius was quoting people saying, well, we, we like Jesus, we want him, but you know, it doesn't fit with our, our worldview to say he's human as well as divine. Uh, and they had their religious worldview reasons for that, and atheists might have their reasons for that. This is, uh, I, I would simply say, it is not a contradiction to say that Jesus was divine and human, it was fully divine and fully human. Um, I think part of that you can see goes back to the, the, the Christian and Jewish idea that, that humans are made in God's image. 
humans are, if you like, a sort of scaled-down version of what God is. And so you can see some plausibility to the human nature fitting inside the divine nature because humans are a scaled-down version of God. So it's not like sort of saying the frog was a prince. <laughs> They're two completely different things. Maybe it's a bit, bit more, I, I don't know how useful you find this analogy, but a bit, bit more like saying the, the sofa bed is an article of furniture that's a sofa. It's got the nature of a sofa. And it's got the nature of a bed. But that's not a contradiction because those are both bits of furniture. Okay? Well, humanity and divinity are both personal realities, one of which is made in the image of the other. Okay? And to, Christians don't say, we're not making the claim, Jesus was divine and not divine. Or Jesus was a human being and not a human being, which would be contradictory statements, obviously contradictory. What we're saying is that Jesus was one person who had a divine nature and a human nature. And that's not a self-contradictory concept. And I would probably then uh, boot you to reading something like Richard Swinburne's um, book, Was Jesus God? Um, good British philosopher of religion, and that's one of his more accessible but still fairly hard-going books, but more accessible than something like um, the, the Christian understanding, the Christian vision of God or whatever it is, um, to go into one way in which a philosopher would cash out that. Different philosophers will give different ways of cashing out how come it's, it's logically possible to think that Jesus is divine and human. Um, and generally, they would say, maybe this is not how Jesus managed to be both human and divine, but so long as I can give you a, a, a logically possible way in which he could be, that shows that it's not self-contradictory to believe he is, and then the real issue becomes, is there any reason to believe that he was? Yeah, excellent question there. Thank you, Peter, very much. We've loved listening to you. It's been uh, really intriguing, uh, very helpful, um, and we'd like to express our thanks to you in the usual way. Indeed. Thank you.